If you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bible or navigate on your device to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Our topic, Paul reminds us to seek those things which are above where Christ is, for we died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. The title of our message, Hid and Go Seek. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, we're uh, anxious to have you speak to us in that place that only you can find, Lord, between the soul and the spirit, that spiritual place. By the still small voice of your spirit, Lord, who is in us and in this place as we've gathered together, show us great treasures of your love. Encourage us, strengthen us, bless us, um, exhort us. Do all those things that we've asked and more. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. So, Mr. Incredible, do you have a secret identity? Without hesitating, he answered, every superhero has a secret identity. I don't know a single one who doesn't. Tony Stark would be one. Of course, they're in a different universe. The genius billionaire playboy philanthropist proudly announced to the world, I am Iron Man. Certain secret identities are just stupid. Do the thick glasses really convince anyone that Clark Kent isn't Superman? I mean, seriously, what kind of morons work at the Daily Planet? <laughs> Not only do they look exactly alike, he's always gone when uh, Superman is there. I mean, you think of an investigative reporter. I mean, they need to be fired. I got to thinking about secret identities because of a couple of things in our verses. Look at verse 3. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden. There's something about me as a believer in Christ that is hidden from the world. Next, look at verse 4. When Christ, is our, uh, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That word appear. Sometime in the future, Jesus is going to appear, but in a way the world has not yet seen him. And when he returns, I'm going to appear too, but in a way that I don't appear now. Those of us who are in Christ have a secret, hidden identity that the world doesn't see now, but they will see in the future. One day, we will be unveiled in glory. So are we superheroes? Well, no, but we are supernatural. What else would you call a group of enhanced individuals filled as we are with God the Holy Spirit, sent over all the world with the gospel? Today, we're going to discuss our being hidden in Jesus Christ and our being unveiled by Jesus Christ. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus has hidden you in himself. And number two, Jesus will unveil you with himself. Let's take a look at being hidden in Christ first in verses one, two, and three. If you have valuables at home, here are three of the best hiding places for them, or I should say here were three of the best hiding places for them. <laughs> if you're hiding cash, no problem with me, but anyway, maybe you have cash, Take apart the spring bar that holds your toilet paper. Roll up a stack of bills, stash them inside, and reassemble the bar. Of course, if I'm at your house and I ask to use the bathroom, you might want to be concerned now at this point. Uh, number two, put small containers of valuables in a tub of cat litter, and then pour the cat litter back into the tub. Now, they specified the clean tub, but I think, I think you'd be for sure safe if you put it in the cat litter. 
And then they suggested any common household item that has a cavity will work as a secret compartment, like a vacuum cleaner. Just be sure family members know about it so your valuables don't get donated or tossed, or vacuumed for that matter. So where do burglars look first? Under your mattress, in your freezer, in your medicine chest. So go home after service and all the guns that you have hidden under the mattress that you think are secure, uh, they're not, if they're still there. Now, we hide valuables. We hide things we treasure. God has hidden you in Jesus. Whatever else that means, it means this. He considers you his treasure. And he considers you his treasure right now, not just in the future when he's done working in you. So let's take a look at it, beginning in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Paul was stating a reality, not a possibility. He didn't mean that in the future you will be raised from the dead. That's true, of course. But the verb tense here indicates an action completed in your past. It would be better translated since you were raised in Christ. You and I have already been raised with Christ if we're believers. You were raised with him the moment you were saved. It simply means that's how God sees you now. He sees you as if you're already raised from the dead. The result of this new position is that you can live here as if you were already there. Let me give you an example that you'll understand. At my age, I hear a lot of talk about retirement. Some people have a definite goal and a solid plan for getting there. A good plan usually involves sacrificing now to benefit later. If you know where you want to retire, you likely buy property there, maybe even start building on it in your spare time. I don't know if you've noticed it, but people are leaving California. A lot of people in our own little church here who are per perfectly happy decided that they don't want to live in California anymore. And, and they, it always starts, there's always a progression. They say, oh, we went to Oregon, Utah, Idaho, Montana, one of those places. It's really beautiful there. Then a few months later, yeah, we bought a little land up there. You know, we bought three million acres for a buck and a half. And... Uh, <laughs> And there's no taxes, and the deer come right up to you with signs on them that say, shoot me. And, and it's just the greatest thing in the world. And then a few months or years later, well, this was our last Sunday. God bless you. And then after a few months, watching online. And, uh, you know, so that, that's what's happening. People want to, and so people are planning for their retirement. They're already living there while they're still here. The closer you get to retirement, the more you pour into your goal and the more you think about and anticipate what it will be like. You begin to live here as if you are seated there already. And that's what Paul is saying about heaven. When I realize I'm raised with Jesus, I find myself seeking things which are above. Uh, it reads, keep on seeking them in a continual way. It's a continuous daily activity. Listen to folks planning to retire, and you'll overhear them saying that something they found would be perfect for their cabin in the mountains or the place at the coast or their future home. They're always seeking things to furnish the house they'd rather be living in that they plan to retire in. And so by definition, if you've got a house somewhere that you're going to retire in, you'd rather be there. And you're just waiting to pull the trigger and stuff. And so that's what we, we already do that. Paul says, do that with heaven. Heaven should permeate our thoughts. What does this have to do with heaven is a question that should be a kind of test of attitudes and activities. Paul said there were things above in heaven. <laughs> what are some of them that make earth 
seem pale and dim? Well, first of all, you've been promised a sweet retirement home. Speaking of homes, you have a mansion waiting you in heaven, custom built for you by the Lord. No matter where you would like to retire on earth, it cannot begin to compare to what is awaiting you in heaven. Second, your home is part of a great heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. It's described for you in the closing chapters of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's made mostly of precious jewels, gems, and minerals. No water shortage there. A great spring flows through it. A pure river of the water of life that nourishes the tree of life that produces fantastic fruit. In heaven and for eternity, you'll have a glorified and perfect body that is free from any possibility of sin or sorrow or suffering. And you'll be promised an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Anything that God has deposited for me in heaven is safe and secure. Anything you might add to your heavenly inheritance by serving the Lord on earth, it's just as safe and secure. Then there are the people who have preceded you to heaven, loved ones who love the Lord and are awaiting reunion with you. You'll know them fully as they were intended to be by God, and they will know you. And then finally, but it's really the first thing, the most precious of all is Jesus himself. You'll be with the Lord, you'll know him and see him forever. How can you be certain of these things above? Well, you can be certain because Paul says Christ is there sitting at the right hand of God. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is your absolute guarantee that all these things are true and are headed your way. Because the right hand of God is the seat of authority and power. Read through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and you'll see just how much authority and just how much power your Lord has and wields. That is then how we were raised. That's how God sees us. That's what's going to happen. That's how we should live. Ours is a spiritual resurrection in Jesus Christ that has us already seated in heavenly places. It only makes sense to live now in anticipation of what awaits me then. So when you hear this, you think, yeah, absolutely, 100%, I'm on board. So why do we not always live the way we were raised? Well, the world and the flesh and the devil conspire to divert our attention off of heaven and onto material things and the things of this earth. I forget I'm seated in heaven, and instead of investing my time and treasure and talent where it is safe and secure, I squander it on earthly pursuits. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We're to set our minds by a place, by heaven. The things above that we discussed in verse 1 are the real standards by which to set our lives. I don't know how many clocks you have around the house, but when you have to go reset them for daylight savings time or, you know, whatever, you, if you're smart, you set them by your cell phone because it has the real time, right? And... Um, it even changes at 2 a.m. I've always wanted to wait up and watch it change or not change, but I never have because that would be stupid. But anyway, and so you go around the house setting each of the, either some of them wind up, some of them have batteries, some of them are plugged in, but they each need to be set by some time, 
Otherwise, you'd have different time in every room. That drives me crazy. Maybe you know that. But every clock in my house has to say the same thing. I have real trouble with the oven. Clock on the oven always freaks me out. It never catches up. But anyway, so Paul is saying you should set everything based on heaven because it is true. The things on the earth must not be allowed to take priority. So seriously, what are we, what are you investing in? Is it heaven or is it here? Money isn't the only metric we could use, but it is one that will tell you a lot about whether you are investing here or in heaven. When you survey the New Testament, you'll find that a Christian should give willingly, regularly, joyfully, and sacrificially. I don't have to spend a lot of time on that because you either do or you don't. I mean, it's, it's, those are pretty obvious. Willing, regular, joyful, sacrificial giving is the standard for the Christian. It's not a percentage. It has nothing to do with the Old Testament. It has to do with your relationship with the Lord and those four words. And you either do that or you don't. One commentator put it this way. Handle your money in such a way that you show that God and not money is your treasure. And what I get from that is somebody ought to be able to look at the way we handle our money and see that we are investing in heaven and not just in the earth. So verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you're born again, you die to certain things. Uh, Paul expounds on these in the book of Romans. He says you die to sin and you die to the law. First of all, sin, Romans 6, 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And so Paul says, at the cross, you died with Jesus and became free of sin. You were set free from the penalty and the power of sin. Long as you're in the earth, or excuse me, on the earth in your unredeemed physical body, you're going to deal with the presence of sin. You have a struggle between the spirit and the flesh. But you can deal with it as though you were dead. The, the imagery here is this. Can a dead person sin? Oh, what a stupid question. A dead person can't do anything like that. And so Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin. And so when a temptation uh, makes itself known to you, Instead of thinking, oh, the devil's drawing me in, or I, I just don't have the strength to resist, or whatever it might be, think, I am a dead person. And this could have, you know, you could ask me this all day, and I can't do anything about it because I'm dead. And, and so it sounds funny, but this is the way we have to think as Christians. We have to adjust the way we think. I am dead to sin, so I don't have to be led away by sin. Also at the cross, you became dead to the law. Romans 7, 4, my brethren, you've become dead to the law through the body of Christ. One of the things this means is that instead of trying to live according to God's outward law, you're enabled to live by the power of his inward love. And this is a great freedom that we have, that we really, we really don't want to have it. We would rather have rules and regulations and then judge ourselves according to them. And so whether it's God's law or whether it's things that we add ourselves in our life, we like to be able to judge ourselves and think we're doing okay. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I live a certain way and I think, oh, there's a, there's a movie I wouldn't see. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I just don't want to see that. I'm too spiritual to see that movie. Then I hear that you went and saw that movie 
And I think, well, I'm glad that I'm more spiritual than you. And that, of course, works vice versa as well. And so we, we just, we're kind of, you know, built that way. I've, I said, I've said this before, and it's never popular. Everybody dislikes me for saying this, but who cares? Uh, I'm not a big fan of date night. Everybody all right? Now, let me explain it. I'm a big fan of living your life as if every opportunity is a date and a date night, that kind of a thing. But as far as one night that you set aside, ladies, your husband, his, here, I'm going to tell you what your husband is thinking. He's thinking, great, I can get all my obligations done in a few hours. And if we do a restaurant, I can pick one that has a sports bar in the background and I can watch several games at the same time, more than I could even do at home and yet fulfill my obligation as a husband. Now, I'm exaggerating slightly, uh, but you see the idea. Date night can be just another uh, rule or regulation. Well, we kept date night. You don't love me. I had date night with you. Of course I love you. Could have been doing something else, but I had date night. So the idea is that the Lord says, yeah, you're free from the law to have a real relationship to come right into my presence, to, uh, to, you know, we can talk one with another, so let's do that. Then I'll tell you how I want you to live, the Lord says, but it won't have anything to do with your brothers and sisters or judging them or them judging you. You're my servant and you rise or fall according to what we've decided. And it's a, it, it should be freeing, but we, we almost don't want to be freed. We, we want to be under some kind of burden and obligation because we think we can live up to it. But... Uh, we're dead in Christ, raised with Christ, dead to the law. And then Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Albert Barnes says this word hidden can be used of buried treasure. We've seen the things that are safe and secure that are awaiting you in heaven, mansion, the new Jerusalem, your new body, your inheritance. What this phrase is telling us is that Jesus also has something to look forward to in heaven. He has you to look forward to. You are the Lord's treasure. He can't wait, to use an earthly expression, to see, uh, see you in heaven and to show you off to his Father. And this is also a strong statement about security as a believer. Your life is hidden with Christ. If that's the case, and it is, then your salvation is secure because Jesus Christ is an unassailable hiding place. Now, the assurance of salvation is thought by many to be a license for sin. They reason that if I am saved no matter what, then I have no incentive for holy or godly living. So they like to inject some doubt about whether or not I'm truly saved as a method of motivation. I remember when I, this might not be 100% accurate, but this is what I was taught growing up in the Catholic Church. There were certain mortal sins that if you committed them, that's it, you're done, finished, there's no hope of heaven. And uh, of course, there's on that list some things that are not, mortal sins. In fact, there's only one what we would call mortal sin. What is it? It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we take to mean rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior. But in order to control people's behavior, adultery used to be a mortal sin at one point. That didn't work out so well. So many Catholics were committing adultery that the heaven was going to be populated by Baptists. And so... <laughs> They had to drop that, and, and so, uh, no, I'm serious, you know. Uh, suicide used to be a mortal sin. There was all kinds of mortal sins, and that you lived in fear that you were going to commit that, that mortal sin, uh, and you had no assurance of your salvation uh, or of any security in Christ. 
Paul thought and taught that the more you understand your security in Jesus Christ, the more you live in a manner pleasing to him. And so you may as well live now as if you are already in heaven. Plan for your retirement in heaven. Your home is waiting for you there. Your city and citizenship are there. Your wealth is being stored up there. Those you love who love the Lord, they are there and the Lord is there. If your mind is not fully set on these things above, hit reset and get going. Now, verse 4, Jesus will unveil you with himself. Every, anybody remember Extreme Makeover ran on ABC for about four years? I never watched it because I'm a Christian. No, I'm just kidding. I'm a Christian. I'm not kidding about that. Each episode featured two people whose looks were changed in an effort to transform their lives. It was accomplished through the skills of doctors, a plastic surgeon, an eye surgeon, a cosmetic dentist, along with a team of hair and makeup artists, stylists, and personal trainers known as the Extreme Team. At the end of each episode, the participants returned to their friends and family to reveal their new looks to their loved ones. Their loved ones were not allowed to see the incremental changes during the process, just the big final reveal. We will experience the most extreme makeover of all time when we receive what the Bible calls our resurrection or glorified bodies. And that's what is going on here in verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is our life can be taken many ways. Here's just a few. Christ is our life reminds us that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Christ is our life reminds us that we have Jesus living in us by the Holy Spirit and can now live life in his power. Christ is our life reminds us that we are living forward to the time we find ourselves in heaven and eternity. And Christ is our life reminds us that nothing and no one else could ever hope to satisfy us. Everything and everyone must be subordinate to him in order for us to live life to its fullest. Now, as much as I want to talk about the rapture, that is not the appearing of Jesus that Paul was referring to. He's looking past the rapture to the second coming of Jesus. We know it's the second coming because that is when we also appear with him in glory. So what we're looking at here in verse 4 is a return to earth, not a removal from the earth. So we're looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I think this would be a good time to describe what happens when a believer dies. I recently did a graveside service where I went over this. Uh, it's a question that people uh, either skip over or don't ask themselves, but it's very interesting. So let me, let me do that. The Bible tells us there are three different possible states of existence. We begin life in our current human bodies. We will in the future, at the return of Jesus, be resurrected or raptured and have glorified human bodies. For believers who die prior to Jesus coming to raise the dead, there is obviously an intermediate state between death and resurrection, during which time we look forward to the resurrection of the body. Now, we read in 2 Corinthians that when a believer dies, they are absent from their body, immediately consciously present with the Lord. And so their body remains uh, in its current state on the earth, but their spirit, their soul and their spirit go to be with the Lord. It's further confirmed by Jesus when he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And so Jesus knew that there was no break consciously. Once their bodies were expired, they would be awake and alive consciously 
in eternity. And the Apostle Paul said he had a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Death to him meant he would immediately see Jesus. But obviously, if you die, you are not in your glorified body until Jesus returns to resurrect you. Paul described it as being unclothed. And so there is this intermediate state that a lot of people are in. What's it like? Well, information isn't plentiful, but we do have example of saints in this intermediate state. On the Mount of Transfiguration, two Old Testament saints appeared with Jesus. You remember who they were? Who were they? Moses and Elijah. Now, these guys, along with all Old Testament saints, have not been resurrected. They don't have glorified physical bodies yet. Nevertheless, the disciples saw them. They immediately recognized them. And so this tells us they had some kind of substance. So it's possible that you have a temporary body in this intermediate state, but I think it's more likely that your spirit actually has substance as it awaits the resurrection. You don't need to think of your spirit as a ghost that's floating around or something that's wearing a sheet with two eyes cut out of it. Your substance apparently, or your, your spirit apparently has substance so much so that if it comes into our reality the way it did at the Mount of Transfiguration, it's easily recognizable. And so um, those are the three states that you can occupy. Jesus is coming to resurrect the dead in Christ and to rapture those who are alive and remain. If you've died prior to his coming, you'll be raised at that time in a glorified body, meaning your spirit will be reunited with your body. Your body's rotting in the grave, for, for example. But Paul said, no, think of it this way. It's like a seed to a plant. The seed goes into the ground. The plant that comes back out of it is something totally different, totally beautiful, totally wonderful. Uh, nevertheless, without the seed, you don't have the plant. And so there is a connection to our body, whether it's cremated or blown to smithereens or put in the ground, that is going to be resurrected and you will have a glorified physical body. My goal is to be raptured, to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye to receive my glorified body without ever dying. And there will be a generation of people that that happens to. And so we're then in heaven for the duration of the seven-year great tribulation. At its close, in earth's darkest hour, we'll return with Jesus at his second coming. Yes, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ to the world and it will be glorious beyond expectation, but it is our unveiling also. We appear with him in glory. Listen carefully to this. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, as it reads in the Amplified Version of the Bible. When he comes to be glorified in his saints, on that day he will be made more glorious in his consecrated people, and he will be marveled at and admired in his glory reflected in all who have believed. Now, that's a mouthful to say that as Jesus is revealed in his glory, part of it will be his glory being reflected in you and I and in our glorified state as we return to him. In other words, not that we could add anything to Jesus Christ because he is very God of very God, but the Bible says that we add in one sense to his glory 
His glory is what is responsible for us having our glorified bodies, and so it amplifies His glory when people see throngs of believers raised from the dead or raptured. The angels in heaven, the people on the earth who survived the tribulation, they will see the radical physical and spiritual transformation that has occurred in you and I. It will be a climactic unveiling after which we will forever be on display as illustrations of what the power and grace of God have accomplished in those who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All of this is currently hidden from view. We are hidden with Christ in God in the sense that no one can see this future glory, but you and I who are believers know that it's going to happen, and, and we can't wait until that day. We're promised he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so the Lord is the one who began this process of saving us, did he not? Uh, we could not save ourselves no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him, and so the Lord sent the Spirit to free our will so that we could choose to be saved by Jesus Christ. He began that process, and he will continue it. We're promised that we are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. I've, as I've shared with you before, we're not predestined to be saved. After we're saved, we're predestined to be like Jesus, and so it's the same thing again. The Lord is going to finish what he started. And we're promised that it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And so when you see Jesus in the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 19, coming through the clouds to the earth, and those following him on white horses that are us, we will be like Jesus in glory. Superheroes usually save the world, if not the entire galaxy. When Jesus returns in glory and us with him, it will be world-saving. The Lord once said, unless those days, the days of the great tribulation, were shortened by his return, no flesh would be saved. Commentators argue about what it means to be shortened. It probably just means that unless God put uh, an end to that time, a physical end to that seven years, if it had gone a day more than seven years, mankind would have destroyed itself. But the Lord is coming in plenty of time to save those who remain and to uh, establish his kingdom on the earth. And so in that sense, uh, he's a world saver, a galaxy saver, and we with him. O hope of glory, our Christ will return. We will be raptured with glory transformed, glorified with him, himself to enjoy in his full likeness. We then will be formed. O hope of glory, our Christ will return. Waiting and watching, we faithfully serve, running the race, pressing on toward the goal that we, the kingdom's reward, might deserve. Let's pray together.